greetings and welcome uh, to this session together for Grace Point Church. We welcome our Grace Point Church family and also any guests who are with us here today. Uh, we wish that you have a good day and hope that you uh, are doing well. And we are thankful you are here. Well, this is Mother's Day and uh, my mother always liked to see me in my tie. And so uh, this is uh, just an honor in, in honor of her memory. And uh, she taught me much in her lifetime, and I miss her, but I know I will see her again. So happy Mother's Day to you all. Also, the flowers. Do you like that touch? I borrowed those from the mother of my children. I don't think she knows it, but she will when she watches this. But uh, we are glad you're here today, and especially uh, for those of you with families who are uh, in the depths of homeschooling and having children home all day. Uh, we continue to pray for you and encourage you in the Lord Jesus and that this is a time that uh, God knows all about here. Well, let me pray as we begin here this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, as families adjust to everyone being home, uh, as businesses and schools are closed, uh, we ask that you would guide us in your new realities that you have for us. I pray for husbands and wives, uh, the grace for each other, and I pray that you would just uh, prompt uh, worn out parents to speak words of kindness and encouragement to their children. And I pray that you would help uh, each child who finds themselves in a new situation, that they would find creative ways to experience the beauty that you have created and to continue learning and uh, to rejoice in the fact that you know them and you love them. And Lord Jesus, today as we uh, enter your word again, as we uh, together open your word and learn together, pray that you would give us uh, insight and wisdom through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you're with us in each and every way. And Lord, that even though we're scattered around uh, the community, around our world, we pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see your blessings this day. We pray for those in leadership, uh, in healthcare, as well as in our government, that they would have wisdom and seek your wisdom. And we thank you uh, for them. And we praise you for this day of life that you've given to us. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Uh, it's always been curious to me how we human beings uh, are so attentive to the odds of something. Uh, I was looking up the odds of winning the Powerball lottery, and at least the latest figures I received uh, on the internet, of course, is uh, your odds of winning the Powerball lottery are 1 in 292 million. One in 292 million, and yet uh, people every day uh, buy Powerball tickets and think that well, at least somebody's got to win that. So we approach those odds a little differently than perhaps we approach the odds of coronavirus, and we're in the midst of this pandemic, and uh, sometimes odds are a funny thing. And let me uh, read you uh, a, just one paragraph. I just received this book this week. It's by John Piper. It's entitled Coronavirus and Christ. It's just a small book, and I would encourage you uh, to get it and to read it. It doesn't take very long to read, but he begins in chapter one. Uh, he tells us his thinking about writing this book during this time. Piper writes, I am moved to write because playing the odds is a fragile place to put your hope. Odds like 3% versus 10%, youth versus old age, compromised health versus no history of disease, rural versus urban, self-isolated versus home meetings with friends. Playing the odds provides little hope 
Did you get that? He says, playing the odds provides little hope. It is not a firm place to stand. There is a better way, he goes on to write, there is a better place to stand, a rock of certainty, rather than the sand of probabilities. A rock of certainty, rather than on the sand of probabilities. And so we hear a lot about the odds of coronavirus, and depending upon how you interpret and filter that data, it's either such a minute chance that you're not worried at all, to others, it seems overwhelming. And so each person uh, has a response to this. But the question today is, is uh, where do you put your hope? Where do you put your trust? It's been a challenge to me this week also, as each day seems to change. Each day is uh, full of new uh, challenges, and we look forward uh, to what tomorrow brings. And we all look forward to the time when we can meet together again where we can resume what we consider to be life as normal as it was perhaps uh, eight, ten weeks ago before this all started. Well, we are returning to the letter to the Colossian church, the Colossian church. And the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to give them hope, to give them encouragement, but also to combat the false teaching, the pandemic, the virus, the false teaching that was invading that church. And the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to encourage them to hold fast to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Uh, the basic message of Colossians is that Christ is supreme. He is the preeminent one because the false teachers were teaching something quite different than that. And they were, uh, they were polluting the gospel of Jesus Christ with their own thinking. The false teachers in Colossae, like uh, the false teachers of our own day, don't necessarily deny the importance of Jesus Christ, but they do. They simply dethrone him. They give him perhaps some prominence, but they don't give him preeminence. Jesus Christ, in their viewpoint, and this what is called the Colossian heresy, was simply one of the many eminences from God. In fact, they believed that all matter was evil, and therefore the human body was evil, and how could God take on an evil human body? And so they denied uh, that Jesus Christ was the God-man, just an emanation from what they considered to be God through which men could reach to God with a higher knowledge. They were very uh, fixated on the fact that only the very spiritual would reach this higher knowledge, and Paul refutes them in this section that we're going to look at today. So if you take your copy of God's Word and turn to chapter 1 of Colossians, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 20. We looked at verses 13 and 14 in our last session, but that is a good starting place to set the tone for this next paragraph. So chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 13 through 20. You know, probably no paragraph in the whole New Testament contains more concentrated doctrine about Jesus Christ than this one. One writer has said, we can keep ourselves from going on a detour if we remember that Paul wrote to prove the preeminence of Christ, and he did so by using four unanswerable arguments. And so the Apostle Paul gives us four arguments in this passage of Scripture uh, that answers the false teachers of his day and also answers the false teachers of our day. And so he desires us to grow in Christ. I'm going to read the whole passage for you, beginning in uh, chapter 1 of the Colossians, verses 13. We'll read down through verse 20. 
And of course, as I said in our last session, you know, a, a letter isn't just snippets or Facebook posts, but it is an argument that goes from beginning to the end. And so it's good if you read the book of Colossians uh, in one setting. Uh, so in verse 13, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was by the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Boy, amen and amen, we say. That is such a packed full paragraph. Uh, we probably will not exhaust it in this short session, so I'd encourage you to continue your own study and look at that uh, very uh, intently as we go through it here today. But like one writer said, no paragraph in the New Testament contains more concentrated doctrine about Jesus Christ than this passage we have just read. And so we're going to see these four unanswerable arguments that the Apostle Paul advances in the face of this threat to the church at Colossae and to the threat to our church today, to the threat of evangelical Bible teaching churches around the world. The first, uh, answer, thir first uh, argument he advances is found in verses 13 and 14, which I said we looked at last week, but it's worth returning to. And it's basically that Jesus is the preeminent Savior. He is the supreme Savior. There is no other Savior. Jesus Christ said he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father but through him. But in verses 13 and 14, he gives us four things to be thankful for. Remember back up in verse 12 that the, whole, the Father has qualified us. He's given us inheritance of the saints in life. And then verse 13, he rescued us or he delivered us. He rescued us from what? From the domain of darkness. All human beings are hell-bound without the intervention of God providing Jesus Christ the good news of the gospel who died, was buried, who's crucified, buried, and rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. He took your sins and my sins upon himself. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've trusted in him for everlasting life. You are secure in that, and you have been rescued. You have been delivered. Secondly, the Father has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're no longer who we used to be. We are part of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved Son, and that's Jesus Christ. And then it tells us in verse 14, the two things, two of the things he has done for us, it says, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So the Father delivered us. He transferred us to this kingdom of his beloved sons. And Jesus Christ redeemed us, meaning buying us out of the marketplace of sin. He has redeemed us and he forgave us. This forgiveness in the believer's life, we have been forgiven. And Jesus Christ has accomplished that. So he is the preeminent savior. That is the first argument 
It's not some emanation or greater knowledge of some so-called spiritual, pseudo-spiritual person that makes him go to heaven. It is God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinitarian aspect of this. The second argument the Apostle Paul advances is Jesus Christ is preeminent in his creation preeminent in creation, and this has everything to do with almighty power here. Look at verse 15. He existed before creation. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Image is the idea. It is like a coin. If you have a coin handy, you can look at a coin, and I have some old silver dollars that uh, my grandfather gave my mother, who then in turn gave them to me, and as I look at those and the mints mark on them, and uh, uh, I think one of them was made in the Denver Mint, and I can look at that coin and I know exactly what the die that struck it looks like. I know exactly what that die, even though I've never seen it, I know the exact image of it. The image is like that coin, it's the exact replica. And uh, he is the icon of God. The Greek word is icon. Now we have icons on our computer, but it comes from the Greek word, and that is he is the icon. He is the general likeness, the specific representation, and the perfect manifestation is what that word means. Uh, while we as human beings are made in the image of God, Jesus Christ is the image of God. There's a difference there. He is the icon of God. He is supreme in rank. Jesus Christ is supreme in rank. Again, look at that verse. <clears throat> verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, cults have misunderstood this, mistranslated this, and even clear back in the second and third centuries, there were heresies that developed thinking that Jesus Christ was a created person, that he didn't live in eternity past. But a firstborn here does not refer to time. This is not a time issue, but it is a place and a status issue. Jesus Christ was not the first being created since he himself was the creator of all things. Firstborn simply means of first importance or first in rank is what it means. Uh, Paul uses other prepositions here and he refutes the philosophy of these false teachers. For centuries, Greek philosophers have taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. The primary cause is the plan, the plan of all things. The instrumental cause is the power that makes that plan happen. And the final cause is the purpose. Why, you know, why do we exist? Well, Jesus Christ is the primary cause. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. He is the primary cause. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the instrumental cause. He produced it. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And then the final cause, what is the purpose of that? It was for him at the end of verse 16. He created all these things for him. And then in verse 17, he tells us about his power. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who upholds. He's the one who gives us the next breath of our lungs, the next beat of our heart. He is the one who sustains us. In aviation, uh, there is an aspect where we kind of make fun of helicopters, 
uh, because there's a saying that a helicopter uh, is simply a thousand parts flying in close formation. And sometimes people wonder what holds them together. All matter is rapidly moving like a helicopter and all the parts move together like particles. I was reading about uh, a guide who took a group of tourists through an atomic laboratory and explained how all the matter was composed of rapidly moving elect elect electric particles. The tourists studied the models, the molecules, and they were amazed to learn that it was made primarily of space. And during the question and answer period, one visitor asked, "Is this if this is the way matter works, what holds it all together? And uh, for that, it's reported the guide had no answer because only God exists before all of creation and only God can make all creation adhere together. He keeps us in, together in his will. So Jesus Christ is preeminent in his creations in verses 15 through 17. In verse 18, the third argument the Apostle Paul advances is Jesus Christ is preeminent in his church. Look at verse 18. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is our source. He is, the origin, he, he is our origin, our leader, and our ruler. In fact, the church, the church age from Acts chapter 2 uh, at Pentecost to this present day and in the future as God determines it, uh, he is sustaining it, he has designed it. We are called the bride of Christ. And Jesus Christ is our living head. He is preeminent. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul uses the example of our physical bodies and how it all functions together as a picture of the church. And yet without a head, the physical body does not function, does it? It's simply dead. And so Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And he declares it there. Christ is the head of the church. And besides being the Lord of the universe, the creator God, the power to that, he is the head. The reference here is to uh, what we call the invisible or universal church, the one that started in Acts chapter 2 in the first century and goes on to today, the one that is around the world. The Bible teaches a universal aspect of the church, but it also teaches about local churches, and that's why we're in the book of Colossians. That was a local church, and he was addressing it, and we have things to learn from the local church. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit moves us the moment we believe in Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't feel it. We don't experience it. But the Bible declares that we are positionally put into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are rightly related to Christ, to his people, to his church, and to his word. This work of the Spirit began on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and that uh, now we're in this body of Christ, this bride of Christ, where it's declared there's no Jew and there's no Gentile. We are one in Jesus Christ, a whole new creation. Uh, in the Old Testament, it talked about a mystery. The church age was a mystery. It doesn't mean it was scary or like a murder mystery on TV, but it was previously unknown truth that even the Old Testament prophets did not see this time period, this age that God had designed. And so we've seen these three arguments that Jesus Christ is the preeminent Savior. He, <clears throat> excuse me, he is preeminent in creation. He is pre preeminent in his church. And the fourth uh, argument asks the question and answers the question is, what about his relationship to God the Father? 
And we believe in a Trinitarian God. The Bible teaches that God is Trinity, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Three persons in, 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 in one essence. And we have no correspondence to that, but the Bible does teach it. So Jesus Christ is preeminent in this relationship or this connection. He is uh, preeminent in this connection. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He is of one essence with the Father in the, whole, in, in the, in the Trinity. Paul took a giant step forward in his argument for he declared that, declared that all fullness dwelt in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that uh, translates fullness is the word pleroma, the Greek word pleroma. And it was a technical term in the vocabulary of the false teachers, not referring to Christ, but it means the sum total of all divine power and attributes. Paul used this important word eight times in the Colossian letter so that he was meeting the false teachers toe-to-toe, face-to-face, and throwing it right back in their face. The word dwell, all this thing about dwelling, it's more than just merely to reside. The verb means to be at home permanently forever. Uh, Kenneth Wiest, uh, who is a noted Greek commentator and a, and a uh, scholar, pointed out in his commentary on Colossians that the verb uh, to dwell <clears throat> indicates that this fullness was not something added to Jesus Christ that was not natural to him, but that was part of his essential being as part of his very constitution and that it was permanent. It is eternal. It is everlasting. So the Apostle Paul is telling us that the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ, and this is an eternal value. So he is in permanent and preeminent and prominent connection in relationship with the Father. And then in verse 20, it tells us what he has done through this and also through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth and things in heaven. So he is our reconciler. He is the peacemaker. Reconciliation, we think about that, and we think of uh, human being to human being, uh, that sometimes there needs to be reconciliation because uh, we perhaps have offended another person or both of us have been offended, and so there is this need for reconciliation and forgiveness, and we need to have peace in our relationship. Well, in Scripture, when you see the word reconciliation or to reconcile, it is always directed at man, always directed at human beings, never towards God in its direction because God is reconciling human beings unto himself through Jesus Christ. God never had a need to be reconciled to us. He has always loved us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. And that's a declaration of being reconciled to God. Uh, it's easy to see the importance of holding right views here because our attitude about Jesus Christ and our very idea of God are affected by this. The basic meaning of this word is to remove all impediments to peace so that harmony prevails. In other words, Jesus Christ took your place and my place on the cross of Calvary because our sin and our rejection of God 
put up these barriers and we needed to be reconciled to God and Jesus Christ is our reconciler. He's the one who opened the pathway, took our sin upon himself, took our disobedience upon himself. And since he was the perfect God man, he took our place on the cross of Calvary to suffer the wrath of God, which was rightly should be ours in ourselves. Uh, the marvelous thing about this is it does flow out of the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary, and it's brought this to pass. You know, the cross is probably the sim single most important symbol of the Christian faith. We wear them as jewelry. Perhaps we have them in our homes. Uh, we have them in our churches, and we look to the cross because it is symbolic of this reconciliation that Jesus Christ has provided the way for you and I to have eternal life. And so we say, and having uh, God has disarmed the powers in chapter two, we're going to see, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross in chapter two, verse 15. The cross is a symbol of the very center of our lives if we are believers in Jesus Christ. So he is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our head. He is the one that uh, we look to in difficult times and in good times also. Uh, so the question today is, is Christ prominent in your life? You know, there's a lot of prominent things in our lives. Uh, my grandchildren are prominent in my life, but uh, do they rise to the level of my Savior Jesus Christ? Or is he preeminent in your life? Is he preeminent? Uh, so how are you living out this coronavirus, this time of very unusual life, if I may say so? Are you betting on the odds that coronavirus uh, will not reach you? Or are you betting on the odds that it will, uh, depending on where you're at? Are you resting and hoping and placing your trust in uh, the development of a vaccine or in uh, government officials to do the right things? Or are you resting in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, his preeminence? Towards the end of this little book, John Piper has uh, one little paragraph. I want to close with this paragraph uh, on this Mother Day and Mother's Day and, and to really challenge you as it's challenged me to think through where does my hope rest? Where does my hope, what is the object of my hope? Is it in uh, life returning to what I consider normal, you know, it probably won't, but uh, where does my hope lie? John Piper writes, what God is doing in the coronavirus is showing us graphically and painfully that nothing in this world gives the security and satisfaction that we find in the infinite greatness and worth of Jesus Christ. This very passage we just read, uh, the global, he goes on to say, this global pandemic takes away our freedom of movement, our business activity, and our face-to-face -face relations. It takes away our security and our comfort. And in the end, it may take away our lives. The reason God exposes us to such losses is to rouse us to rely on Christ. I want to emphasize that. The reason God exposes us to such losses is to rouse us to rely upon Christ. He goes on to say, or to put it another way, the reason he makes calamity the occasion for offering Christ to the world is that the supremacy, the supreme all-satisfying greatness of Christ shines more brightly when Christ sustains joy in suffering. So is Christ sustaining joy in your suffering?
being shut down at home, homeschooling, jobs perhaps, your job has gone away. Uh, do you still have that joy, not based on your circumstances, but based upon the, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done? For he is supreme. He is preeminent. And you need to rest in this passage and wrestle with it some more. Well, this morning, as I close, uh, let me pray for you. And then I will, well, let me just do this benediction. I have a benediction for you today. I like benedictions because it's not just wishful thinking. Uh, a benediction is not just a filler for the end of a, a, a worship service, but it is a time where we reflect on these promises that God has given to us and they are a personal card to you, if you will. Clear back in the book of Numbers, of course, it's called the great Aaronic blessing where God spoke to Moses and had Moses tell Aaron, the high priest, and his sons saying that you shall bless the sons of Israel. Well, we can bless you with this, with this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that's my prayer for you, that you would have peace this week as we all grow together in the midst of this difficulty in the cause of Christ together. God bless. Have a great day. And uh, my prayers are with you. Please stand as the church scattered worships together. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. i